Got your Bibles there? Acts chapter 6, reading from verse 8. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miracles, uh, miraculous signs amongst the people. Opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue of the freemen. That's what it was called. Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the province of Sicilia and Asia, these men began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses, those who testified, This fellow never stopped speaking against the holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw his face was like that of an angel. May God bless us through this reading. Well, good morning again. As we're moving through the book of Acts, we're we're watching the growth and the development of the church and we're noticing some of the difficulties and the uh, distractions that the church has to face that are thrown at the church. Today we come to the martyrdom of Stephen. He was killed for his faith. Now I hope that none of you get any ideas. That's true, Ken. I don't look like an angel. (laughs) My birth name was Stephen, so don't get any ideas. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word right now, we're just so grateful for it. And we're thankful that your word is alive and active. And you do continue to speak through your word. We thank you that as we look into your word today, your Holy Spirit also speaks. And Father, we pray that your spirit would be speaking to us, encouraging, comforting, guiding, challenging, convicting. Thank you that you will not allow your word to return to you void. And so we open ourselves, our hearts to you this morning. Speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So prior to Pentecost, the church didn't exist. And Jerusalem was where it all began. And you would think that a city that was predominantly made up of Jews would be a soft start that would face little trouble. However, the culture of the city of Jerusalem was both deeply traditional centred on temple-based worship, and it was also a highly cosmopolitan city. Although it was mainly Jewish, it was highly cosmopolitan due to the mixture of Jews from all over the world 
whose native tongue was a different language. And so you'll remember on the day of Pentecost that the disciples all spoke in tongues and the miraculous thing was that all of these Jews from all over the known world were hearing the gospel in their own native tongue. And so there were differences in culture, there are differences in languages, there are differences in the background of those who are there in the city of Jerusalem. Into this mix, let's start a church. As Kate reminded us last week, whenever even a small number of people try to live together and share their resources, then even tiny distinctions can breed suspicion and mistrust. A lack of support for the Hellenistic widows was the first real occasion of trouble that the church faced. Ananias and Sapphira, well, that was an attempt by the evil one to derail the purity of the church through hypocrisy. And now the evil one attempts to bring division through disharmony. If he can reduce the church's effectiveness through hypocrisy, or tear it apart through disharmony, then he will. And today, we still need to be alert to these same tactics. Now, Stephen was one of the deacons of the those chosen to attend to the needs of the Greek-speaking women. They were being overlooked when it came to food distribution. He, along with the other seven... All chosen servants also spoke Greek. Greek speaking Jews. After the laying on of hands and being set apart for ministry, being filled with the Holy Spirit, their ministry doesn't just remain as distributing food, their ministry expands greatly. For Stephen, he became involved in healing and teaching and almost immediately he's embroiled in controversy. So verse 8. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Wouldn't you love it if that was the first thing that was mentioned on your resume? If that's what everybody knew you for? David, or Shirley, a person full of God's grace, full of God's power. Not only a person of impeccable quality and character, of grace, but of power, doing great things for God and in the name of God. Jesus said in Matthew 7, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. By their fruit, you will recognise them. Jesus said to his disciples, said to the crowd that was listening to him at the time, by their fruit, you will recognise them. Sadly, however, as verse 9 through to 13 brings out, opposition arises and those that are loyal to Judaism, they stir up the people and they produce false witnesses to testify against him as they drag Stephen before the Sanhedrin. Sounds like someone else who had gone before, doesn't it? 
Let's drum up some false witnesses. Why is it that we overlook the grace and the power, the quality of character, the good deeds done, the fruit of the life, in order that we might knock someone down? Why is it that we struggle to be graceful in our responses with one another? I wonder at times how our conversations with one another may change if we're in the midst of a conversation and Jesus walks in. How might our conversations change? I wonder whether we may not hold on so tenaciously to our treasured position if Jesus sat down beside us. How grace-filled are we really? Unfortunately, in this case, there were people who were more than protective of their understanding of their religion, more than eager to protect it, than they were to allow a person of grace to bless their community. You see, the Hebraic-speaking Jews held fast to their ritual worship and the idea that the temple was where God resides. They were holding fast to their traditions. We shall not be moved, was their song. And since Stephen was declaring that worship of God was no longer restricted to the temple, then the accusations came. We shall not tolerate this. Verse 13. This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. In effect, they were saying, Stephen, you're undermining the law of Moses. You're speaking against the temple. And behind all of that, you're blaspheming God. And seen from the perspective of a hard-line Jew such as Saul, then there may well have been some truth to those first two accusations, but he was never blaspheming God. From their perspective, Stephen was attacking their worldview and that coloured the way that they saw everything and the way that they would respond. And usually there's only one of two different responses when your worldview is being challenged. Either we recognise that we may need to actually consider, think through, change our worldview, or second, we react in such a way that we throw as much mud as we can at the opposition. And eventually they throw much more than mud. How quickly things can turn ugly. How sad it is when pride will not allow us to even consider that there could be another position or even a more valid viewpoint. Pride can bring such destruction. And we live in a society that is quick to attack, attack anyone who doesn't agree with us. 
And this can creep into the church, can creep into our behaviour. As we look at ourselves, we too need to be open to the idea that our concept of the church may not be the only way. That God may move in other ways too and perhaps we need to consider the degree to which we are overly protective. Sometimes our worldview needs to be challenged, especially when it comes to our attitude toward other people, other cultures, First Nations, drunkards, drug abusers, bikies, mentally disturbed, homosexuals. Put six or seven of each of those into the church right now, sitting next to you. And we adopt many of the same attitudes and sometimes our mindset is simply wrong, just as it was in Jerusalem, a mix of cultures that were all struggling to get along together. Sometimes we adopt those same kinds of attitudes toward other people whom God made and God loves. But even though Stephen represented a challenge to their model of religion and they fought against that, it says they were taken aback by his wisdom and the spirit in which he spoke. Surely they saw a humility and a deep concern for the well-being of the church that they couldn't fault. They saw a genuineness of character, of grace. Surely they saw his good fruit that was blessing the community. Yet they would not and could not accept his message. We really need to be alert to our own defensiveness when our shackles start to go up. When we're getting defensive, we need to be alert to that. And we need to pursue humility when we're being challenged. But the story of God is a moving story. It's in perpetual motion. It's taking us from point C, creation, to point G, to to glory. It's a story that involves different characters, different chapters. It's a journey that is moving and it's evolving. It's a transition that takes alternate tracks, ever moving forward to the ultimate destination. And this is part of Stephen's response as he stands before the Sanhedrin. And so he begins his journey through the Old Testament with Abraham. And he's trying to say there's... God is on the move. God is, the story of God is changing. Verse 2 to 3. Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was speaking, while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. He calls them his brothers 
and his father's. He's showing them he respects them as people. And then he reminds them that God first appeared to Abraham while he was in Mesopotamia, which was obviously not a part of Israel. It wasn't a part of the beloved Holy Land. And this call to Abraham meant that he was to go to a new land. God was up to something new. And it seems to me that God is always up to something new. He's making rivers in the wasteland. God's always been doing that. Up to something new and refreshing. He then speaks of Joseph from verses 9 to 10. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all of his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And so Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Although Joseph was rejected by his brothers, God used him to rescue his brothers and their families. And so the message may be starting to become clear to the Sanhedrin The pinnacle of the Old Testament revelation of God's plan finds its climax in Jesus. God is still making all things new and once again his means of rescue has been rejected. Rejected as Jesus was crucified. He then moves on to Moses, verses 22 to 25. Moses was educated in all wisdom and the Egyptians of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. Now, this is an interesting little way that um, Stephen is interpreting what's occurred in the Old Testament or with Moses. He saw one of them mistreating, was being mistreated by an Egyptian and so he went to his defence and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realise that God was using him to rescue them. But they did not. And so Moses also became a rejected rescuer. At this point, he fled for his life later to return and under the prompting of the Lord to do just that, to rescue the people, rescue them from slavery. Stephen also speaks of the encounter between God and Moses at the burning bush. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of the burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. And then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. So God met Moses in the desert, and God calls it holy ground. Ground. Maybe the penny's starting to drop a little more. The inference, I think, was clear. Anywhere that you meet with God in life, in a life-changing encounter, is holy ground. 
and it may be anywhere that God chooses, it's no longer, Stephen is saying, it's no longer just reserved to the temple precinct. And if God can speak through a bush, if God can speak through a donkey, then he can speak through ordinary people and not just the priests. And so his message is starting to heat up. God is always about making things new and Israel as a nation has consistently rejected his attempts to rescue his people. And God is not bound to the temple. Now perhaps you can look back to a burning bush. Think back in your life. You can look back to a place that was holy ground. There was a place where you had a life-changing encounter with the living God. Praise God that he is an ever-present, everywhere-present God. Ever-present, everywhere-present. Jeremiah said, Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him? declares the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth? And King David in Psalm 139, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? And he concludes that there's nowhere, nowhere that I can go to be away from God. And back to Jeremiah, he says, call to me, or that God says through Jeremiah, call to me and I will answer you. God is everywhere present and ever present. He's ready to hear. He's ready to respond. I want to encourage us to pray and to pray that God will meet with those that we love who don't love him wherever they might be. May holy ground be found in the most unholy of places. May God speak through us. I wonder what new things God could be wanting to do in your day. So Stephen's response then moves into top gear. He's denouncing their idolatry. He declares that Worshipping anything that is made by human hands is worshipping an idol and they recognise that. They agree with him. They say, yes, anything that's made of human hands is worshipping an idol. And he says, you have come to worship the temple and you have come to worship the man-made system that surrounds it. In doing so, they've rejected and killed the one who came to rescue them from it. He says, you killed Jesus, God's son. In effect, he says, you're no different to those who went to Aaron and said, make a golden calf and we'll worship that. We've made the temple and the system and we worship that. Little wonder, verse 54. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth 
at him. Imagine he's still standing before them and they're gnashing their teeth at him. How quickly things go pear-shaped. They were wild with anger. And Jesus said, by their fruit you will recognise them. But I want you to notice the different fruit from verse 55 through to 60. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this... They covered their ears, yelling at the top of their voices. They all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Whilst they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. I don't know about you, but once again, our passionate desire to see justice done is challenged. As the human judges were condemning Stephen to death, the earthly court was finding in his favour. And although earthly justice was not forthcoming, eternal glory was imminent. You see, Stephen was dying to please Jesus. Nothing was more important to him than pleasing his Saviour. And his response was still marinated in grace. Nothing was more important to him than pleasing Jesus. He was dying to please Jesus. Perhaps too we're challenged by our lack of forgiveness. As he said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Could we say that? Jerusalem, again, was a mix of cultures all struggling to get along. The temple-based worship faced real challenges in changing times and we face many of the same attitudes of racism and prejudice, of lack of tolerance and an inability to forgive, even within the church. Our response to one another is often with little grace. And so we need to be alert to our defensiveness. We need to question the level of our humility and our pursuit of forgiveness when we're feeling hurt. Do we 
seek to be filled and go on being filled, as Paul says, go on being filled with the Holy Spirit. Do we seek to be filled and go on being filled with the Holy Spirit, as Stephen was? Can we seek to be people of grace? Can we see the fruit of our lives? Think about the fruit of our lives and question, how grace-filled am I? Are we prepared to die to ourselves in order that we would please Jesus? To die to our preferences, to die to the worship of idols, to pride, to holding on to our hurts and unforgiveness. Come what may, are we prepared to die to please Jesus? And can we pray? Asking the Lord to make us graceful people. Just want us to take a moment in quiet meditation, just to stop, to think, to reflect, to pray. Let's take a few moments right now.